If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. It was the decade of the fall of the Soviet Union and the rise of Tony Blair. The triumph of the Good Friday Agreement and the tragic death of Princess Diana. And for a few short years in the middle of it all, Britain was the epitome of cool. For our latest Everything You Wanted to Know episode, Spencer Mizzen sat down with Alwyn Turner, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Chichester, to discuss Britain in the 1990s. So, Arwen, I think it's fair to say that many people today look back on the 1990s with a certain amount of nostalgia. They see the 90s as a a decade of optimism and, I guess, relative prosperity and stability. Now, to a certain extent, I imagine that's got a lot to do with what happened on the international stage at the very beginning of the decade. And that leads me to our first question, which was submitted by Dien Glaskov. And Dien Glaskov asks, how did the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War affect Britain's mood in the early 1990s? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that it's it's, it's an international thing, obviously. The tone of, of the world did change. There'd been this big ideological struggle that had gone on for nearly a century between two different visions of how you organise the economy, and one of them had clearly failed. Um, the, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and then of, of, of communism was largely an economic factor. It was about a planned economy did not work, it seemed. There's an immediate benefit in Britain that we can reduce defence spending, as we did. We cut defence spending by about a fifth in real terms. So at today's rates, that's that's around £10 billion a year, which means that there's more money available for other projects, for, for domestic policy. But I think it was more than that. It was it was a, a psychological thing, that it, it, it felt as if this very long period of uncertainty, of, of competing ideologies had come to an end, and therefore we could move on. Now, you say the end of the, the Cold War had a you know, a huge psychological impact on Britain in the 90s. Would you say that that feel-good factor lasted for the entire decade? The feel-good factor was was one of the great catchphrases of the, the major government in, in the 1990s, um, uh, along with the, uh, the the green shoots of recovery. Uh, we, it was something that people were constantly going to, going for. Politically, I don't think it, it, it happened, a feel-good factor, but I think socially it did. How much of that is related to the international scene? I'm not so sure. A lot of it was to do with the fact that the economy started growing in 1992. We'd had a recession um, that, that, that had kicked in at the end of 1990. It was, a, it was a bad recession. And then from 1992, the economy grew and gradually people start feeling better about things, um, even if they're not conscious of it. That's part of what happens with the, the end of the Cold War as well, is that there is... The opening up of new markets 
with the collapse of the, 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 the communist bloc in Eastern Europe. There are new markets to be had. There are new sources of relatively cheap labour to be had. And that also feeds into the economic growth of the period. And also looking back at the end of the Cold War from a distance of, what is it now, 30 years, is it easy to underestimate now what an impact that had on the psyche of the nation when suddenly, I mean, apparently that was no longer so much of a threat? I think the the presence of nuclear weapons since 1945 has been one of the great themes of, of, of modern history. I mean, it, it's we've not used nuclear weapons since 1945. Nobody has, but that fear of them has burned itself into our psyche, I think. And in the 1980s, the early 1980s, when Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were arriving on the scene and talking about the evil empire of the Soviet Union, there was a, a genuine fear that the rhetoric had become ratcheted up so high that people believed that there was a strong possibility of a nuclear conflict. Obviously, that doesn't happen. And with the collapse of the, the Cold War, with the ending of that and the, the end of that tension, I think what happens is that the the fear of the future then moves on to other issues. And that's when we start worrying about the environment in serious terms, that that is now apocalyptic in its in its rhetoric. Okay, so it's a similar time um, to the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. There's some you know, pretty radical events going on politically and a domestic basis in Britain. And one of one of the main ones was, of course, um, the departure of Margaret Thatcher. Mm. So that that is a question posed by the policymaker who wants to know how did Margaret Thatcher's exit. How, how did that shock the nation? How much of a shock was her departure? And how did the population feel about her when she left office? It was it was remarkably quick, apart from anything else. It was unexpected, just the sheer speed at which Margaret Thatcher was removed from Downing Street. I mean, it took a matter of a couple of weeks. And this is in, in November 1990, so we're, it, it, it feels like it's appropriate for the dawning of a new decade, as it were. And... Margaret Thatcher had been a very noisy prime minister. Some prime ministers are noisier than others, and and they often tend to be followed by someone who's much quieter. Um, in, in more recent times, Boris Johnson being followed by Rishi Sunak. And the same is undoubtedly true in, in, in 1990 with the, the, the sudden elevation of, of John Major. And I think there was a sense of relief, to be honest. I mean, Margaret Thatcher had been there for so long, 11 and a half years. I mean, extraordinary term of office that she seemed almost like a fact of nature and there's a certain oddity to it all it it felt very peculiar but I think mostly there's a sense of relief that that drive for permanent revolution of sheer activity and action or non-stop politics seemed to to abate for a bit with John Major it was much easier to forget that politics existed with Margaret Thatcher, it wasn't. And I, I think we just relaxed a bit. And it was a sense of profound shock, wasn't there? Because I can remember where, where I was at the time. I was in a, a picture of being in a university lecture when the, the, the news came mm -hmm. through. And as somebody was 18 at the time, I, I really couldn't remember another prime minister. And I'm sure that was sentiment shared by, you know, a lot of people. Yeah, I, I, well, I, I, I was older, but half my half my life had been under that government of, of Margaret Thatcher, it seemed. And yes, it was it was a shock because, as I say, she had been there for so long, it seemed like she was an institution. But it was 
it was impressive. It was is a tribute to the British system that she had, as far as the Conservative cabinet were concerned, and possibly the Conservative MPs, she had outlived her usefulness, and it was time to move on. And and the sheer speed of which that was done is really remarkable. Okay, so NCOS seventy two wants to know, and you've kind of alluded to this already in our chat. Wants to know how did the country change under John Major? So we've we've got these two towering political figures in the 1990s, haven't we? We've got Margaret Thatcher and we've got Tony Blair, both of whom sort of dominate the decade in the public consciousness. But as you've pointed out, Thatcher was actually followed by John Major and he was in power for, for half the decade. I mean, what was that period like politically for Britain? It is so easy to think of John Major as a kind of interim, temporary figure but but he was in Downing Street for six and a half years I mean it's a very long particularly by modern standards real more recent standards it's a very very long term in office and it changed in 1992 the first couple of years there was this as I say the sense of relief and release almost that, that, that Margaret Thatcher had gone and we could settle down to not having to worry about this stuff so much and then came Black Wednesday when Britain has this this huge economic humiliation in the um, on the exchange rates, and from there onwards, nothing went right for the John Major government, and it was just a constant series of bad stories, of sleaze, of personal corruption and malbehaviour. I, I don't know. It, it 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 felt almost as if that was in a different world, though. John Major had said when he became prime minister that what he wanted was to create a nation that was at ease with itself. And I think actually that's what happened in the 1990s, almost despite the government, not because of it. I don't think that John Major necessarily played any great role in that. I think we just decided to ignore politics for a bit. It was very clear by 1993, I think it was very clear that the Conservative Party was going to lose the next election. But it had only just been re-elected and we knew that we had three or four years left and I think the country just got on with it, frankly, and, and, and just decided that politics wasn't going to shape the country, as it, it doesn't. You know, it's not the sole determinant of how we feel. The country got on with being relaxed and rather enjoying itself. So why did the country relax? What were the reasons for that? I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that, as I said earlier, the economy started growing in 1992 and started to stabilise, and all the all the economic factors turned favourable. But mostly there was a big cultural renaissance um, in, in terms of popular culture, and I think that really changed things. There was the rise of, of what would later become branded as, as Cool Britannia, although the, that term didn't turn up until quite a bit on in the process. But from, again, around 1992, there was this change of, of, of cultural attitudes. Um, you see it with the the arrival of new forms of music, of fashion, of film. Things like 1992 is also the year that um, the Premier League started. And football, football, which had been one of the great negative stories of the 1980s. I mean, tragedy after tragedy. And all the stories of hooliganisms. And and then football reinvents itself. And I think that, 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 that was sort of symbolic of the entire nation, that we did just reinvent ourselves culturally. 
Well, let's talk about that a bit more then, because Harry Graham asks, what role did Britpop play in British culture? So for you know, people of a, a certain age, possibly looking back through uh, rose-tinted spectacles, Britpop could appear like, a, uh, I guess, a, a kind of unique cultural moment. But did the mid-90s really produce a, a unique flowering of creativity across the arts? Or, or would you say that Cool Britannia was, to a large extent, a, a kind of media construct? I don't think it's a media construct. There was a genuine cultural moment and excitement. It's not unique, and, and a lot of it was very much enthralled to the 1960s, which, which, which is perfectly reasonable. In the 1960s, for three or four years, Britain was the centre of world popular culture. It was an incredibly exciting time. And I think people in the 1990s, we, we started to look back to that as a touchstone. And if the work that was produced wasn't on the same level as the 1960s, it was still a great deal of good work was being made. And it does change the nature of the country. It was still a time when when pop music mattered in, in a way that I don't think it does now and probably won't again. Um, there are too many other competing factors, but this was still a time when it did matter who was number one in the charts. And Britpop was was crucial, I think, in, in helping to reshape our feeling about ourselves. It, because Britpop was pretty much relentlessly optimistic. I mean, it was not it was upbeat. And it was accompanied by this this explosion across the other cultural manifestations. I mean, you had people like John Galliano and and Alexander McQueen, these great designers. British designers going to France and working for French fashion houses. I mean, people hadn't done this before. The French fashion industry was not looking to Britain for a lead, but now it was in the 1990s. And you had um, the, the, the rebirth of British film, Four Weddings and a Funeral, the, the, the highest grossing British movie ever made. This stuff was, was, was big and important, the young British artists. Uh, it was just right across the cultural spectrum. There was a new sense of optimism and enthusiasm, and hope, I think. And the, the country felt different as a result. I mean, Britain seemed to have sort of a kind of a, a renewed sense of self-confidence in that period, didn't it? Why do you think that was? I think, to a large extent, it is a reaction against the time of Margaret Thatcher. She had won three elections in a row. She seemed immovable. And then when she was removed, it turned out that the Conservative government was still in power anyway. It won a fourth general election. And I think at that point, a whole load of people who, whose entire adult lives had been spent under this Conservative government pretty much gave up on politics to some extent and, and decided that instead they would pursue cultural change. And it is notable that a huge number of those people who were involved in what became known as Cool Britannia were people of a, a certain vintage who had been born in the in the early and mid-60s, um, who had lived under Thatcher and felt that if, if we wanted to change society, we weren't going to do it through politics because the Conservatives just kept on winning every single time. Maybe we should do this through cultural activity. And, and, and a lot of the stuff that had been on the fringes in the 1980s suddenly becomes mainstream. And we do reinvent ourselves, as I say, with that, that reference back to the 1960s. 
Just on on the Britpop, it is worth noting, I think, the biggest selling British band in the 1990s was the Beatles. Right. The the three anthology albums that they released in the 1990s all went to number one in America, and they made them Britain's biggest selling band of the decade. So, I mean, there is this, this big legacy from the 1960s that still hangs over it. But that's good. You know, people, as I say, people look back to the 1960s as a time of hope and optimism. Why not tap into that? Now, Britpop was accompanied by the rise of uh, lad culture, which to many people, I guess, especially looking back from the perspective of 2023, was one of the decade's possibly least endearing traits. Would you say that, to some extent, the 90s was the decade that political correctness forgot? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's true. I think it's if you see it as an interim phase, that it's not a permanent position, the changes that were happening were huge. It's in the 1990s that women overtake men in terms of numbers in the workforce. That revolution of women becoming part of public life, that had been going on for a long time, but it really, it, it, it hits a tipping point in the 1990s. And I think the whole lad culture was a way of dealing with that. And it is true, undoubtedly, that magazines like Loaded, etc., were sexist in their portrayals of women. But on the other hand, it's also the decade when sales of pornographic magazines collapse and some leading titles like Penthouse cease to exist. What would you say the rise of the Spice Girls represented about changing attitudes to women at the time and also self-confidence among women themselves. Yeah, I mean, the Spice Girls are the great success of the Britpop world. I mean, I know they're not normally lumped in, but they they were part of that. They they outsold Oasis in America um, and globally, and they are important. They they gave a whole generation of of girls and young women a, a feeling that you could negotiate the world on your own terms. They didn't behave as if they were trying to be men. They didn't... They, they they didn't make any adjustment to it. The phrase "girl power," which which predated them, is 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 a bit trite, but it does have some resonance to it. It 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 is a uniquely female cultural expression in a way that I'm not sure had really been seen before, and they did look as if they were in control of things. They did look like they were shaping their career, however manufactured people said they were. They looked like they knew what they were up to. Um, and they, they, they were, I mean, apart from that, they made very good records. Um, they also looked like they were very competent businesswomen. So Britpop's heyday was the mid-1990s. That started coming to an end, say, around 1997. But obviously 1997 was another massive year in uh, modern British history because that saw the election of um, Tony Blair as Prime Minister and... and um, the rise of power of New Labour. Now, Golden from Golden wants to know, how did political dynamics shift to give Labour such a massive landslide in 1997? The landslide was primarily the result of Conservative voters losing faith in the Conservative government. In 1997, the Tories lost four and a half million votes the Labour Party gained 2 million. 
So that's a huge chunk of people. I mean, the Lib Dems went up a bit as well, but but there's a couple of million people simply absented themselves from the electoral process. Um, and the turnout was very low. It was the lowest turnout since 1935. So this wasn't entirely a tidal wave of enthusiasm for the Labour Party. There was genuine enthusiasm for Tony Blair. I mean, he was seen as the great hope, but not necessarily the party as a whole. But I think it was it was those Tory voters just simply going away. The, 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 I mean, in, in 1992, the, the Conservative Party had become the first party ever to record more than 14 million votes in, a, in an election. I mean, they were coming from a very high point. And then everything had gone so wrong. And Tony Blair and New Labour succeeded because they didn't look too threatening. Blair himself exuded hope and optimism. I mean, he was so much part of that Cool Britannia phase. But beyond that, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. That it, was, it was more to do with the fact that it didn't look as if they were going to make radical changes. And again, maybe this is post-Cold War, Cold War as well, is, is, is that feeling that there is no alternative. And the, the, the Labour Party had said, if we win the election, we will stick to the Conservative tax and spend policies for the next two years. There's going to be no upheaval. We are not going to put up income tax. It was a, it was a very modest proposal that they were coming forward with. It, it, meant it, it, didn't, it didn't frighten people away. It looked as if we could cope with this. But would you argue actually politically the transformation wasn't that great? Oh, undoubtedly. I don't, I don't think there was a huge shift. And had the Conservative Party not been in office for so long, had not looked quite so tired and exhausted by office, um, maybe they could, have, they could have tapped into that mood as well. But it, it, it wasn't to be. It was, it was about enthusiasm. It was a, Tony Blair was young. I mean, it's, it's worth noting that John Major had when he became prime minister, was the youngest prime minister of the 20th century. I mean, there had been this move towards it, but then Tony Blair was a decade younger even than John Major. And to some extent, that what he has to do is, is to get over the charge that he is uh, too young and inexperienced, and this isn't a time to send boys in to do a man's job and all that. And he very, very successfully negotiates that by making his youth a selling point he is untainted, and the Conservative government was tainted by that stage. I, I think there is a natural period of office, even for those governments that are in office for a long time. 13, 12, 13 years seems enough. That was what we had in 1951 to 1964. There was a 13 year period of Tory government. The Blair Brown years was 13 years. 1992, it seemed to most commentators, that the Conservatives were going to lose office then, which would have been after a 13-year period. The fact that it went on, I think that was... You just end up looking exhausted by the whole process and needing a period in, op in, in opposition to try to recover. OK, RYP Fitness asks, economically, was Britain at its peak in the 1990s or is this a myth? Now... I guess there was this perception in the 90s was a decade of surging markets and plentiful money. I mean, is that true? And if so, how did that impact upon the decade? It's a slightly odd story because 
the economy starts growing in 1992, and between then and the crash of 2008, there is a period of uninterrupted economic growth every single quarter. The longest period of, un- of uninterrupted economic growth in British history, as the Blair government kept on telling us. But it's not that big in terms of economic growth. The average growth in GDP annually over the 1990s is 2.2%. Well, in the 1960s, that had been 3.4%. So we're down to about two-thirds of where we had been. It's still good in retrospect. I mean, we, we started by saying people look back on the 90s with some fondness. Economic growth has been worse in the two, first two decades of this century. But it's it was worse than it was in the 1970s, which we as, as, as passed into kind of folklore as the time of economic crisis and stagnation and, and all the rest of it. Economic growth was better in the 1970s than it was in the 90s. So it's not it's not that it's spectacular. It really, really isn't. We're, we're, we're bumping along the bottom at the lowest that we've been since the war, except that there's no negative growth at any stage. It is consistent. It's small, but it's consistent. And that's, that seems to me possibly more important than the actual size of it, is the fact that it it feels stable. And that's 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 a good thing. And, and, and that, that produces a sense of well-being because... You can make some sort of plans and arrangements and take out uh, loans and mortgages, confident that you'll probably still be in a job in two years' time. It's, it's, it's not swinging. It's, it, and so although, although the growth is mod, modest at best, at least it's consistent. Okay, Steph McVank asks, how transformative a decade was the 1990s for the troubles of Northern Ireland? Now, we've just reached the uh, 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, and there's been quite a lot of events going on to mark that anniversary. I mean, how big a moment was the Good Friday Agreement in the context of the 1990s and all that had gone before? I, I, I think it's huge, isn't it? It's, it's, it's Tony Blair's greatest achievement. Although it doesn't start with him, obviously there are so many other people involved. But but it, it's it's he he facilitates that final bit, I think. But it is huge. I mean, there'd been a civil war; thousands of people were dead, and and for those of us who could remember the nineteen seventies when it was at its height, when there were nearly five hundred people killed in a single year, there was I, I was going to say a sense of relief, but it's more than that. There was a sense of joy that this had come to an end. And it came to an end because both sides recognised that it had hit a stalemate, essentially. There was, there was no military solution on either, in, in either direction. It would have happened earlier. The first IRA ceasefire that kind of set the tone for this was, was during the John Major government. But there was a limit to what a Conservative government could do, I think. I, 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 not John Major himself, but just this was a this was a government that had had members of its own party, of of its MPs, even of the cabinet, killed in the process. It needed the, the, a Labour government really to, to take it through to completion. And it was a bit of a fudge. And both sides conceded things that they would not wish to concede. But I think that was, I say, partly because of Tony Blair, who was very good at fudging. It seemed... It seemed quite a good idea that it's 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 not entirely satisfactory, 
But the longer the conflict does not happen, the better the chances of a generation growing up who will never want to restart it. And so, yes, 25 years on, that, that uh, it has become normalised that we, are, we do not have a civil war anymore. That I think it was, uh, yeah, the Good Friday Agreement and, and, and the end to the Troubles was an, uh, was an amazing time. Now, the past few weeks have seen us reach another anniversary, and that is the murder of the black teenager Stephen Lawrence by a gang of white youths in 1993. How did that event impact race relations across the 1990s? The key bit of that, I think, was um, although the, 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 the original murder did get attention, it, it, it just it built it did not go away and and reaches a, a a climax in 1999 with the McPherson report on policing which was huge and the idea that the police particularly the metropolitan police might be racist might occasionally be corrupt might be incompetent this was not a great revelation but it was all centered around this one dreadful killing where there could be no no alternative explanation, as it were. When the Scarman report in the in, into the riots of the early 1980s had had uh, adverse things to say about the police, that was put in the context of yes, but there was a riot. Stephen Lawrence was so obviously an innocent innocent victim that could not be spun in any other way. That I think the McPherson report makes a much much bigger impact because it reveals. Problems, structural racism, institutional racism, a phrase that had been around for a very long time but was not part of common uh, discussion, I don't think. And now it was. And people started looking at institutions and how things had gone. And there was a feeling, I, I, I believe, that this was going to be the pivotal moment when there were clearly long-running sores that could now be healed, that we were making serious progress. And I, I, I think we end the decade with a sense of optimism about that, that, that actually maybe we're coming to terms with things that have gone wrong and that we can improve upon. I mean, the idea that one person is killed in a racial attack, that will remain, I assume. There will always be a handful of violent people who will find expressions of racism. The, the real thing that was exposed by the Stephen Lawrence killing was the institutional embedded problems of, of society. Okay, I'm going to turn to a question now from Nicholas Surges, and that is, what did the handover of Hong Kong to China in 1997 tell us about Britain's position in the global order? I'm not sure it changed anything about how we were how we were seen or how we saw ourselves really. It was it was a a legal requirement. We we fulfilled our legal obligations um, in handing over Hong Kong. We, I, th- I think, did as much as could have been done in terms of trying to protect the rights of the people of Hong Kong. Tony Blair said of the handover ceremony, he wrote in his memoirs about how he felt a tug of nostalgia for the old British Empire. Um, and I suspect there was a certain element of that as well. That Not that people wanted to go back or regretted the, the departure of empire, but that ceremony of, of giving away a territory to China, it did feel like there was a, 
a moment passing, possibly more than I, 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 than other former colonies being handed back because it was the last big one. It felt like the culmination of the process of decolonization. Okay, it's impossible to have a conversation about the 1990s about discussing the, the death of uh, Princess Diana in, in 1997. Cheryl Babineau wants to know what does Princess Diana's death tell us about the power of the press in the 1990s? And just to add to that, I, I wonder if we could have sort of a little bit of a discussion about what the explosion of emotion that accompanied Diana's death tells us about Britain as a whole in the 1990s. That week between, to remind people, Diana died in the early hours of the Sunday morning and the funeral was on the following Saturday afternoon and so there's, there's a week between and essentially nothing happens at all in the entire country it seems everything just stopped and it was an extraordinary week uh one that I I, I I don't think I've ever seen the like of in my in my lifetime and I, I can't really think of a parallel to it was a grieving uh there were plenty of people who said that this was an ersatz grief it was not authentic but I, I i don't know it felt it felt like it was somehow people were genuinely stunned and some of it was then exaggerated that uh there were a great many commentators saying this was uh the the, the birth of a new britain that was emotionally literate that was that was the great catchphrase of the time was emotional literacy no longer the uh the stiff upper lip buttoned up repressed old britain now we were in tune with our feelings i mean i think I think one can over overestimate that somehow, and and people did overegg the puddings fairly substantially. But it was, it was a thing. I, I, I think the fact that we don't necessarily remember how extreme it was, is because we were slightly embarrassed afterwards, because there was still enough of the stiff upper lip, buttoned up, repressed old Britain around that we then felt that maybe uh, we'd overstepped the mark a little bit. The press was certainly at its peak in that period. Sales, apart from our sales of newspapers, went up enormously over that week. And the great fear of the press was that they were going to get blamed. The, the fact that Princess Diana had been being chased by paparazzi meant that, you know, maybe the newspapers, the media, would take the blame for this. And very rapidly within that week, they, t they turned the fire of the public anger on the royal family itself on the institution of monarchy. And there was a moment around about the Wednesday, Thursday of that week when it felt as if actually maybe the monarchy was in, uh, having its worst ever moment since the abdication, possibly even worse than that, that the institution was falling apart because it had lost public trust and then recovered remarkably. So how did Diana's death change Britain? I mean, you just said that, you know, that the royal family is under an enormous amount of pressure for a period there, but then, like you said, they recovered. I mean, what I'm getting from that is actually nothing really changed in the long term. Nothing substantial changed, I think. The royal family changed. The monarchy reinvented itself, taking on board some of what Diana had done. And I, I, I think you can see with, with uh, the current Prince of Wales that there is clearly the, the influence of Diana is there, but blended with the influence of... of the existing Windsor family, that it's reinventing itself, as the British monarchy has always done, which is why it is still with us. It, it, it constantly reinvents its 
great challenge is to reinvent at a speed that is commensurate with social change. And that might have been difficult, given that we had a, a, a monarch who was, had been on the throne for so very long, even then, was a long-reigning monarch. But uh, the late Queen Elizabeth proved to be rather adept at negotiating this territory. And it, it quietly reinvented itself and is still with us. OK, so the start of the 1990s saw uh, the World Wide Web, which was, of course, invented by the British scientist Tim Berners-Lee, first entering public use, even if it was on a you know very, very small scale at that time. I mean, do you think anybody in the 1990s have had any inkling of the impact that the internet would have on human activity over the following three decades? I'm not convinced that we yet know the impact that it's going to have. Um, <laughs> that first decade of the internet, as you said, it's... It, the web starts in 1991, and the first decade didn't really add anything particularly new. The big success stories of that first 10 years were um, companies like Amazon, eBay, Google, Wikipedia, all of which did things that could already be done. They just did them better and faster and on a much bigger scale. But, I mean, Amazon doesn't add anything. It sells you products, for you, you know, the same as a high street. It's just doing it by giving you more choice. So that first decade, I don't think it felt as if it was, it was exciting and it was it, you know, genuinely uh, something different, but not really. It, it, didn't, it didn't actually change the nature of how we behave. It's only the second decade when you start getting the rise of social media, you start well, MySpace. I think was probably the first, long since forgotten. But LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube those those happen in between two thousand and one and two thousand and eleven in the second decade of the internet, and that's that changes it entirely because those are doing things that you couldn't do normally in in any other format. So that that first decade, it felt like a Everything that we already had, turbocharged and, and, and up on a massive global scale and terrifically exciting, but it wasn't challenging any inherent structures of how we behave. And I'm not sure that people could... I'm not sure people really yeah, anticipated that social media would have the impact that it has. But that, that idea of democratisation, of, of people being allowed to have a voice, that was there. But, but where it leads to, as I say, I, I don't think we know yet. We're still still at a very early stage. Okay, Alwyn, so finally, now I was going to make this my first question of our interview, but I was slightly worried that you'd say no to this or your answer would, would be no, and then we wouldn't really have anywhere to go after. So this is my final question. Um, it's submitted by Holly Dolly Doodah, um on Instagram, and that is... Is the 1990s so close in history that it's hard to look at objectively? Which I, I guess that kind of translates as, does the 1990s count as history? What do you say to that? I teach a module at university that goes up to 2016, so and, and that's supposed to be a history module, so maybe it is. It's, it's difficult to consider the period that one's lived through to be history, but it, it is... A fair distance away now. It's twenty years back. I think we can look at, at where we were. 
When I was born in the early 60s, the equivalent would have been the Second World War. People were writing books and analysing that very substantially. I th- no, I think I think we have moved sufficiently far away, and not simply in terms of time, but the feel of the country has changed. I do think that the 90s was a period of optimism and a sense that actually maybe we had reached a new equilibrium. All the, all the talk in the 1970s and 80s was of the, the ending of the post-war consensus. The 90s feels like we have built a new consensus, and that always feels, when one's living through it, as if it as if this is how it's always going to be. It is not, obviously. And we have moved on from there and things feel very, very different now. And it does feel to me like it was a different country. That was Alwyn Turner, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Chichester. For more episodes in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, including on Britain in the interwar years and the swinging 60s, head to our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.